Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, the end of the year is often a time of reflection, a chance to reassess our priorities and make changes in the new year. But if the goal is greater happiness, author and Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks says we may be going about New Year's resolutions and a lot of other attempts at improving our lives all wrong. Brooks' new book, co-authored with Oprah Winfrey, called Build the Life You Want, offers strategies to increase happiness and even challenges our conceptions of what it is. We'll learn why Brooke says happiness is not a feeling. After this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Arthur C. Brooks knows what it means to reinvent yourself. He's been a professional French horn player the head of a leading conservative think tank. And today, he teaches the science of happiness at Harvard and writes a popular column for The Atlantic where he shares advice and data on what it means to live a happier life. Now he's written a new book with none other than Oprah Winfrey called Build the Life You Want. So with the new year around the corner, he joins us to talk about his latest research on happiness and to take your questions. Professor Brooks, welcome to Forum. Thank you. Great to be with you. It sounds like when it comes to understanding what happiness is, a lot of us are not defining or thinking about it very well. So what do we often get wrong? Oh, there's so much that we get wrong about happiness. To begin with, most people think it's a feeling. I ask my students on the first day of class, I have you know huge graduate classes and in, in, in the science of happiness. And I say, look, you're taking the class, you must know what it is. And so I ask them to define it. And one by one, they say, it's the feeling I get when I'm with the people that I love, or or it's how I feel when I'm doing what I enjoy. And I say, well, that's not correct. Happiness is not a feeling any more than the smell of the turkey is, is your Thanksgiving dinner itself. Feelings are evidence of happiness. And to begin the journey toward greater happiness, you need to define it much, much more precisely. That's the first big error that we make is thinking that we're just chasing a a vapor, a phantasm, a feeling. Well, that would be a terrible way to live. And that's how a lot of people are actually living. So if it's not that, then what is it? What is this bigger thing that you describe? Well, if I start off by saying Thanksgiving dinner is not the smell of the turkey, then I have to define it. And there's a lot of ways to do that. I could say it's a bunch of ingredients that you use to make your Thanksgiving dinner or a bunch of different dishes. But if you're kind of a nutrition nerd like me, you'd say, well, Thanksgiving dinner is like any other meal, which is a combination of protein, carbohydrates, and fat. 
all food is a combination of those three macronutrients. And the same way, happiness has three macronutrients to it. We know that the people with the highest levels of well-being from year to year have three things in their lives in balance and abundance. Those things are enjoyment, satisfaction, and meaning. They enjoy their lives, which is not the same thing as pursuing pleasure, very different. They're satisfied with their accomplishments and they work hard for them and, and they have a sense of meaning, sort of an answer to the why question of our lives. And we could actually go a whole semester just defining <laughs> those things and, 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 and putting together strategies for each one. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, we don't have a whole semester, but in broad strokes, how can you increase the intake of those three macronutrients? Or at least we can maybe just focus on a couple of them. Like, for example, you say enjoyment is not pleasure. What's the difference? Well, pleasure is a, a so-called limbic phenomenon. It tends to, it, it implicates the limbic system of the brain, a console of tissue that's very ancient evolved over a 40 million year period. And it has really one job, which is to give you your drives and, and, and cravings and desires and, and emotions. What it does is it takes signals from the outside world and it turns it into information that we call feelings. Big mistake that a lot of my, my students make is they think that there's such a thing as good feelings and bad feelings. That, that's not correct. We have positive and negative emotions to give us an accurate sense of what's going on around us and to give us a strategy that we can, or signals that we can send to the prefrontal cortex of our brain and make a decision about what to do. We should be very grateful for our negative emotions and not try to eliminate them. Hmm. Now, pleasure is a limbic phenomenon. It's nothing more than a signal that says that something that you're doing and you might do compulsively and addictively is from ancient times, something that would give you more calories or more mates or something that would allow you to survive and pass on your genes. Now, they're, they're, it's really maladapted to the current environment with technology and science. And so, you know, we have things like fentanyl and pornography and things that are truly terrible for the brain that bring that bring pleasure, but also bring addiction. They bring captivation and they can ruin our lives. Enjoyment is, is it, it takes the sources of pleasure, but it it makes it more human. It, it it moves the experience of that pleasure to the C-suite of the brain, to the executive centers of the brain, the prefrontal cortex by adding two things. You know, you don't have to be a Puritan and take away the sources of pleasure. You simply have to add people and memory. That's the whole thing. When I talk to young adults and I say, look, if there's something that could be addictive and gives you pleasure, if you're doing it alone, you're probably doing it wrong. Mm. You know, beer ads never have, you know, feature a, a dude alone in his apartment pounding a 12 pack. And there's a reason for that because that would be addictive, dangerous, irresponsible behavior. But that's the pursuit of pleasure and how a lot of people use the product. They have two people clinking the, the bottles together and, and having a good time. They take the source of pleasure, which is alcohol, and they add people in memory, and that turns into enjoyment. And that's the beginning of happiness. I see. So, for example, if you do like a beer or a glass of wine or something, having people with you when you are partaking in that pleasurable activity actually increases your enjoyment of it. What's the memory piece? Well, the memory piece is what you're actually, you're, you're creating a, an experience that you can remember. That's the reason that uh, on Thanksgiving, yeah. most people like Thanksgiving dinner, although when you think about it objectively, turkey is probably not your favorite protein source, but, <laughs> but people enjoy the Thanksgiving dinner, but they never eat it alone. It's very unusual that somebody would eat it alone. They eat it with people that they love. And then they often, you know, when I was a kid, we had you know, 30 pictures of a turkey in the oven that were indistinguishable uh, of, you know, one from the other. And the reason is because we were making a memory so that we could experience the joy that came from that, the enjoyment again and again. 
We're talking with Arthur Brooks, co-author with Oprah Winfrey of the new book, Build the Life You Want, and you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What questions do you have about happiness for Arthur Brooks? Is he making you rethink your conception of what it is? Have you adopted any practices to try and increase happiness? What has helped you? You can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on our social channels at KQED Forum. You can call us at 866-733-6786. Again, that number, 866-733-6786. So my understanding is that these macronutrients, they are supported by basically four pillars, or I don't know if supported is the right word, but that these four pillars play a big role in your ability to experience enjoyment, satisfaction, and meaning, and that is faith, family, friends, and work. And I wanted to just ask you about a couple of those. For example, with faith, do you mean religion? No, I don't. I mean, it's just a placeholder. So there are a lot of different ways that we to get one thing that we all need in order for us to be able to acquire these macronutrients. And that is to be transcendent to our day-to-day life. We the problem with life is that you know Mother Nature really doesn't care if we're happy. Mother Nature just wants us to procreate and survive. And, you know, <laughs> if we want if we want to be happy, that's our business. That's yeah, kind we, of the divine path. I think I might have a slightly different definition of Mother Nature, but that is one thing if you think about it in that context. Yes. Oh so. yeah, she has those <laughs> imperatives for us, and she and and we're wired for survival and gene propagation in a big way. But we want to be happy, and so that we think that our natural you know inborn urges are always going to bring us happiness and they really they they often don't one of the things that we need to do is to get away from the natural tendency to be the star of our own psychodrama you know it's like my job and my money and my lunch and my commute and it's just so tedious and it, it, it distracts us from the broader world there's a a guy out near where you are, it's a, a you know, colleague in my field, a psychologist, I'm sure you've had him on your show, named Dacher Keltner. He's at, teaches at Berkeley. Yeah. And Dacher, he, he wrote a, v- a really great book last year called Awe, A-W-E. And what he, what he showed in his research, and he's been just doing it brilliantly, is that when you back up from your psychodrama, when you get peace and perspective by zooming out on your own little world, when you make yourself small... Life gets better and you understand things better. You have a unique perspective that can actually sustain you. And so one of the best ways to do that is actually religion, but that's not the only way. I talk to people and I've done research on walking alone in nature before dawn without devices or studying the fugues of Johann Sebastian Bach, which is something I've been doing for decades at this point, or starting a meditation practice or reading the Stoic philosophers with seriousness or or practicing the faith of your youth. But you have to do something or you'll be stuck in well, you'll be stuck in you. And that's not that great. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I love that idea of getting smaller. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Experiencing awe is one way to do that. And we did have Dr. Keltner on to talk about that right around this time, maybe in January of this year. So I, I recommend that conversation as well. The other one is friendship. And mm. what I was interested in was the the point that you make that we have what are called deal friends and real friends, that we may not be so satisfied in our friendships if we are not. There are people who are very satisfied in their friendships because in part we may have more, quote, deal friends than we realize. What are deal friends? Deal friends are, well, you're useful. This goes really back to Aristotle. Aristotle was the the, the best early social scientist when it came to the business of friendship. And, and he categorized friends as transactional 
you know, people that we need, they're very useful to us, people that we just admire. These are friendships of beauty, but at the highest level, the virtuous friendships, the perfect friendships that we we simply love. And he would say that those people are atelic. They don't have a telos to them. They don't have a utility to them. Deal friends are at the lowest level. And there's nothing, this is not to cast aspersions. I have plenty of deal friends. And I like them and I'm useful to them and they're useful to me. And that's what kind of makes the world go around. There's nothing wrong with it. The problem is it's not enough. And a lot of people, they have too many useful people in their lives and they, they, they marginalize the, the useless people. You need useless friends. I don't mean worthless. I have those too, but useless, <laughs> but useless friends, they just love you and you just love mm. them. And it's so important that we don't make time for it. And the more we're such strivers that we like, ah, who has time to call my college friends? You, you got to do it. I love that your closest friends are, quote, useless friends. And we're coming up on a break, but just give us one strategy for either converting a deal friend to a useless friend or creating those more deeper relationships, Arthur. You know, it's actually looking for the people in your past or in your present who, who are not looking for anything from you and you're not looking for anything from them. But generally speaking, you both love a third thing. There's mm -hmm. something you have in common that you're interested in. Maybe it's your faith. Maybe it's music. Who knows? Maybe it's the San Francisco Giants or building birdhouses. But it's something that you have in common that's not usefulness from the other person. From that can spring the most beautiful kind of friendship. We're talking about the art and science of getting happier with Arthur C. Brooks. Maybe you know him from his column at The Atlantic, or you may have read his new book, Build the Life You Want with Oprah Winfrey, or his other books, which include From Strength to Strength. We'll have more with him and with you, our listeners, after the break. Stay with us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about happiness this hour with Arthur C. Brooks, Harvard professor, columnist at The Atlantic, and author of the new book, Build the Life You Want, The Art and Science of Getting Happier. 
what do you want to know about how to be happier from Arthur Brooks or how to get happier maybe is a better way to say it. What does happiness look like to you? How do you define it? Maybe Brooks is making you rethink your conception of it. Have you adopted any practices to try and increase happiness? What has helped or what have you struggled with? Maybe you've struggled to keep your New Year's resolutions. I'm guessing that uh, Arthur Brooks has some ideas of how you can do that better. You can email forum at kqed.org. Call us at 866-733-6786. Post on Instagram, on our digital community, on Discord, on X Twitter. Our social channels are at KQED Forum. Let me go to caller Bennett in Alameda. Bennett, you're on. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Um, I was kind of thinking initially responding to the, the conversation you were having about doing things alone versus with people. And for me, like the solo creative acts of like creating music or writing are, are very important. And I guess that kind of ties in with the section about law, but if Professor Brooks could, I don't know, talk a little bit about sort of like a solo creative act or generative practices. Oh, yeah. If it's so important to be able to do things or pleasures with people, then where does the solo creative artist fit in? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really good point. And nobody would suggest that there's something wrong with praying by yourself or writing music by yourself or walking in nature by yourself. The whole point about pleasure versus enjoyment is there's a class of activities that that can be addictive. They, they can capture your brain. They, they tap a little structure in, your, in the limbic system of the brain called the ventral striatum. It makes you feel really, really good. And anything that can be addictive, that's the thing to be skeptical about using it alone. That's the point. But the things that aren't addictive, that are really generative, wonderful, part of your part of your life. Generally speaking, they will provide enjoyment, but they're primarily a source of satisfaction and meaning. And yeah. that's where the creative act actually comes in. So they, they tend to work on a different channel. It's a good point. It's a good clarification. Yeah, it's the other two nutrients, I guess, or macronutrients that you yeah. talk about satisfaction and meaning. It also sounds like, Arthur, that a really important tool for getting happier is learning to effectively manage your emotions. Can you talk a little bit about why this is so vital? Most people don't actually recognize that they can manage their own emotions. I, I had a conversation with a big person in finance, somebody who's significant in, in on Wall Street, and, and he was confessing to me that he could manage very successfully $13 billion of other people's money, but he couldn't manage his own marriage. And the reason is because he couldn't manage his feelings. And it was a mystery to him. Most people think, look, I can manage my work. I can manage my my family life, I can manage my checkbook and finances, but I, I don't know how to manage my feelings. My feelings just happen to me. That's a problem because it's a misconception of the way that emotions work. Emotions don't just happen to you. Emotions, once again, are nothing more than information about what's going on in the outside world. You need to be able to use your full brain, including your conscious brain, to interpret what these things mean and just decide what these what, what you're going to do with this emotional information. But when people say, I wish I had fewer bad feelings, they're being managed by the limbic system of their brain. So I have a, a there's a lot of research that's been done on something called metacognition, you know, which is a sounds really fancy, but let's be honest, this is what we academics do. It's a simple concept with a fancy word, and that's how we get tenure. Now, metacognition is really just thinking about thinking. It's putting space between your feelings that are happening to you and you deciding what they mean and deciding how you're going to react. When your grandmother said, when you're angry, count to 10, 
that's just pure metacognition. That's basically letting your prefrontal cortex, your executive centers, catch up with your emotions. And then you can learn techniques on how to, how to manage those emotions so that they're not managing you. The central idea of emotional self-management is giving yourself time and getting a repertoire of techniques. So this is a lot of what Oprah and I write about. And a lot of what I lecture on and teach my students is these metacognitive techniques, counting to 10 or Usually it's actually, you, you need 30 seconds when you're angry of silence and thinking about the consequences of what you want to say. And that will let your prefrontal cortex catch up and manage yourself appropriately. But meditation, Vipassana meditation, aka insight meditation, where you interrogate your own feelings as if they were another person. Wonderful for that. Journaling. You can't journal something in your limbic system. You can only write things down when you're using your prefrontal cortex. And it takes time to get that done. And there's all kinds of techniques we could discuss on how you can cut anxiety like a knife with general uh, journaling. And last but not least, there's prayers of petition if you're a traditionally religious person. When you're offering your concerns and your anxieties and your fear and sadness, your anger up to God and asking what it means and asking him to help you. Wow. It's just, it's pure metacognition. And it's so wonderful once we actually understand that, that we're, we're not to be managed by our feelings if, if we so choose. Mm. Dan writes advice for Draymond Green. <laughs> anyway, um, this all does sound like practical techniques that you can implement, but there are a lot of people who, you know, are dealing with pain and suffering that are a result of circumstances that feel very much outside of their control. And so it might feel, I don't know, frustrating to hear, oh, all we need to do is journal and observe. Right. What is your response to that? Yeah. I mean, circumstances really do matter. What you find is that at any given moment, that negative circumstances can pull our happiness down by 25% and really positive circumstances can pull us up by 25%. But they tend to be pretty evanescent, actually. And the, the more that we understand that much more important than our circumstances is what we're managing inside our own heads, that gives us a lot of empowerment. I've done lots of research on people who are in terrible circumstances and yet who who find that they can create a very happy life for themselves. And people who have the best possible circumstances, people who are rich and powerful and have the admiration of strangers and a lot of fame, and they're just miserable. And part of the reason for that is that they don't understand that you need to transcend both your good and bad circumstances. And that's a way more effective way to look at your life. Just in general, <clears throat> a lot of us, we all have circumstances that we can't control. And, and when we're going through life saying, I, I guess I really can't be happy until the economy turns around. I guess I can't be happy until my health gets better. I guess I can't be happy until my until my spouse starts to act a little bit differently. We've ceded control of our own well-being to an outside kind of uncaring world. At least we should be paying attention to what we can control, which is what's going on inside ourselves. Mm. Let me go to caller Sarah in Benicia. Sarah, you're on. Um, thank you for the show. So um, I think I found a different meaning of happiness during the COVID shutdown. Um, basically, I retreated into my garden. Um, I was in the garden, I don't know, probably eight hours a day. Sometimes if the evening is nice, I would, you know, plug in a lamp and then play some music or listen to NPR <laughs> while I'm gardening. <laughs> um, and that was satisfied me. I mean, you know, I put up a 
a few bird feeders and propagated a lot of plants because I was able to get soil, you know, on curbside. And also, you know, a friend and I, we just walked. You know, we both had that mask on and uh, we walked. And so that was fine. And then my other hobby is um, line dancing. So a group of us, we would just go out and dance in the park. So, mm. you know, it was just really simple things. They're not expensive, but that that was fine with me. Yeah. And it carried and it carried all the way through now. Like, you know, I don't need to do all the shopping or all the, you know, distraction. So, huh. well, Sarah, yeah. th- thank you. I'm so glad that you were able to do that. And in some ways, Arthur, Sarah's describing sort of what you were saying and sort of in the face of something we can't control, like COVID and the shutdowns that Sarah was going through. This was where she was able to create a little bit of space and, and control. I don't know if you have any other reactions to what Sarah's describing. Sure. No, Sarah, Sarah's cracked the code, but most people didn't. I mean, the coronavirus and our reaction to it nationally was absolutely catastrophic for mental health and happiness. You know, we saw within six months that that symptoms of clinical depression had quadrupled and they really haven't come down since then because our behavior has changed. So Sarah did the right thing by by focusing on the sources of meaning and, and focusing on the relationships, focusing on the love relationships or friends that she was line dancing with. Remember, love for the third thing, line dancing. I mean, that's truly beautifully cosmically useless. And you know, <laughs> it's a wonderful thing. And, and, and to be you know, walking with a friend and, and focusing on that. Now, what does that do? I mean, that has, there's a lot of neurophysiology that talks about why that satisfies us so much. But the big majority of people went the other direction. They bought more stuff on Amazon that because it was, you know, comfort shopping. People turn to social media in massive numbers. Social media is for, for, for your happiness is the junk food of your social life. We need a, there's a neuropeptide in the brain that most of us have heard of before called oxytocin. It's intensely pleasurable and we're incredibly uncomfortable when we don't have it. You get it from eye contact and touch with other human beings. And, and when you're deprived of it, you'll feel, ugh, you'll be so at loose ends. You'll feel like something's wrong because in fact it is. You'll binge social media if you're not thinking about it as clearly as Sarah did. You're not going to work on a birdhouse and out in the garden and line dancing and walking with a friend, you're going to scroll social media and that's going to make you lonelier because it won't give you the oxytocin that you need. And so many people went in the wrong direction. Well, Stephen writes, any suggestions for breaking the patterns of addictive behavior since you're talking about oxytocin and so on? Yeah. 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 The, 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 you know, the, the, the best person really in the world who does work on this is right out in your area. It's Anna Lemke, who she's probably been on your show too, for that matter. She had a wonderful book out two years ago called Dopamine Nation. She teaches at the Stanford Medical School. And um, at Harvard, we say that that little school on the West Coast. And, and <laughs> Anna Lemke's work talks about how dopamine captures the brain in, in all sorts of activities. She actually starts off the book with somebody who's hopelessly addicted to pornography. Then she goes into cases of alcohol and gambling and, and, you know, eating carbohydrate and all kinds of things that can actually artificially stimulate dopamine, which is the neuromodulator of the anticipation of reward. And it gives you all of this craving. And, and what Anna Lemke talks about in her research, and I've seen in my work year after year, is that when something is capturing your brain, the number one thing you need to do is, is, is detox. You, the number one thing you need to do is to fast from that thing. And so one of the things 
things that my students, I ask them to do at the beginning of my class is to go on a, a social media fast. And at first it's hard because, you know, that thing is calling to you. The apps, you touch the app on your phone. It's what you do when you're bored. You numb yourself by scrolling. You, you distract yourself by doing that. And there's always the anticipation of some reward of a funny video or people liking your posts or whatever nonsense that people are doing. And and it's hard at first, but after a couple of weeks, you start thinking, man, I got a lot more time on my hands to do the things that I like. It's And, and so I, I recommend that people go on a two-week social media fast or a fast from whatever it is that is addictive for you. Now, some people, you can't just fast for two weeks and fix the problem. If you're if you're addicted to alcohol, you can't just stop for two weeks and, and, and hope everything is going to be better. But if you're stuck watching and, and looking at news, then that's really a dopamine reward cycle. It's like, I'm going to find out something new, you know, refresh, refresh, refresh. That's really capturing, capturing your brain. Go on, a, go on a news fast. You know, I know. It's like, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I can't, Arthur, but. Um, I know. Or also, I don't want to, I don't want to ruin your listenership, but you know. <laughs> It's a people yeah. are people are really hurting themselves by mm. by allowing their their emotions to to drive their behaviors. Well, you know, you also well, you mentioned how Sarah cracked the code, and one of the things that you said is important to be able to get at the work of of getting happier because it is a process and it does require work is actually measuring your happiness to some degree. Like you've talked about yeah. tests that you can take. Describe the positive or negative affect schedule and why you like it. Yeah. So, so affect just means mood and, and mood is not the same thing as happiness. Remember feelings are evidence of happiness, but you want to measure the evidence. You want to measure the outcomes of what's actually going on to get an idea of what's, you know, actually happening. And, and, and so mood measurement is a really interesting thing. Now for the longest time, people thought that positive and negative emotions were opposites, that, that, that negative emotions was an absence of of happier emotions, but that's actually wrong. They're, they're effectively somewhere between six and eight basic emotions that everybody has. You know, there's on the positive side, there's joy and interest and surprise. And on the negative side, there's anger and sadness and disgust and fear. We all have these emotions, but we have them in different intensities. Now, one of the things that's important for us to understand before we start trying to manage ourselves is to know what our emotional profile is and we're all different. Fundamentally, we go into four different buckets with respect to the intensity of our emotions. Now, once again, we all have the same emotions, but we have them in different quantities and sort of different salience. So for example, you can be somebody who has very intense positive emotions and very intense negative emotions. You're a high affect person. That's me. That's called the mad scientist profile. And that's one quarter of the population. By the way, anybody can go to my website and take this test for free, arthurrooks.com. And you can find out what you are and then a little bit of information about what that means and how to surround yourself with people who compliment you and not make you even nuttier. So that's important. There are people compliment. Who have, you mean like C O M P L E M E N T? Exactly right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, nobody's going to compliment as in C O M P L I M E N T. <laughs> hey, you're a great mad scientist because I drive everybody crazy. As my as my long suffering wife Esther reminded me this morning, <laughs> it's very hard to be married to you. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So there's others, though. I mean, there's three other profiles that are the other 75% of the population. There's people who are high positive affect and low negative affect. Everybody wants to be that. That's the cheerleader. The cheerleader is somebody who, you know, are enthusiastic and positive, but they're not very good at seeing threats and they're never very good at giving criticism. 
That's by the way, when two cheerleaders meet and merit, fall in love and marry each other, they go bankrupt <laughs> this is because they're like an 11th credit card. What could go wrong? <laughs> um, There's there to hit the brakes. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I'm wondering, you know, tests like this can often be seen as, as very subjective and their accuracy often gets called into question. So, so, you know, and I think you even acknowledge this, that it's a very reasonable feeling. So, so how do you respond to that? Well, when I, I, it's a test that I like a lot because it's been used academically in many studies to generate data that have a lot of validity. So one of the things with, you know, everybody just got a cosmopolitan, you're 30 questions to figure out if you're what this or that or the other, that's just made up by somebody. When social scientists are doing that, they're subjecting it to a series of tests of construct validity such that it's shown with relatively large samples when people answer anonymously that it's measuring something that's an underlying phenomenon. And so I like this test a lot because it's extremely accurate. Now that said, you can't take your personality affect test in, in an unusual period in your life. If you're especially, if somebody, if your beloved just left you, I don't, I don't advise trying to get accurate results. You know, if you just hit the lottery, don't take the test that day. I make my test, my students take it a bunch of times over a few weeks, and it will kind of trend toward your natural habitat. And what we find with this test is that this is kind of who you are. It's not necessarily how you express yourself. Look, if you're a you know famous radio personality in San Francisco, just hypothetically, and, and you're having a bad day, you're not going to get on the air and say, hey, yeah, hey, San Francisco, life sucks. No. <laughs> That's not, you know, the poetic personality, you know, in terms of high negative, low positive, is just not going to work. You got to keep the energy up. And so you can express yourself quite differently. One of the things I talk about with my students is that we all need a big repertoire. Yeah, we do need a big repertoire. And I did take the test and, I, you know, I, I'm not sure I love the answer, but it did make me think what I fell into. No, no, I'm not, not going to say. Because I actually think that it may not have been the best time me to take it i only took it once but um but yeah let's just say let's just say that it it really made me think a lot we're talking with arthur brooks his book build a life you want the art and science of getting happier has some tidbits that will probably make you think a lot as well and if you have questions that you are thinking of or comments or experiences you'd like to share please do so at 866-733-6786 at our email address forum at kqed.org or by finding us on our social channels at KQED Forum. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Arthur Brooks, co-author with Oprah Winfrey of the new book, Build the Life You Want. He's a Harvard professor and a columnist at The Atlantic. And his other books include From Strength to Strength, which you may be familiar with. What questions do you have about happiness for Arthur Brooks? Or what does happiness look like to you? Have you adopted any practices to increase it? Or maybe you've struggled. What have you struggled with? 866-733-6786, the number. Let me go to Sue in Napa. Sue, you're on. Hi, um, I wanted to circle back to COVID and the woman who was talking about bonding with her friend and going for walks and things like that. And that happened to me, and it was absolutely wonderful. But, and there's a big but, I'm immune compromised. So as the world opens up, my world gets smaller and smaller to the point where now I have lost Every person in my life, all my loved ones, all my friends, including my best friend. And because no one masks, I can't go out in the world. And I've tried everything from Zooming to therapy to 99 coping skills to everything I can think of. And... I'm going to be immune compromised the rest of my life, and COVID is going to be here the rest of my life. And so Mm. there seems to be no options. Oh, Sue, I'm so sorry for the losses that you have experienced and the concerns that you're describing. Arthur, I don't know if you have any thoughts for Sue. No, it's so hard. It's so hard because I've met a a number of people that have are immunocompromised, and at least in the near term, or medium term, when we when we're going to be living, we will. I mean, most of us have largely moved on from the virus because we're not immunocompromised, and it's a, going to become more a normal part of life. But for people who aren't, it's a it's going to be a barrier for a long time. The it's 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 a it's sort of akin to the same thing that I hear from all of our young people who are incredibly lonely. And, and so they're in therapy and, you know, they're going through different strategies. And the one thing they're not hearing from their therapist is that what you need is eye contact and touch. The reason that we should have no phones in schools is because that should be a safe space where young people look at each other in the eye and, 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 and have even some amount of physical contact that is generative for oxytocin. And when young people are in the cafeteria, you know, looking at their phones instead of the people that can actually give them sustenance emotionally and, and neurophysiologically, it's a huge problem. So I'm, I'm always a huge advocate for getting phones out of schools. But the bigger point of that is that we need more and more creative ways for eye contact and touch. Look, even immunocompromised people can find ways and or we should be all more creative in finding ways that we can have in real life eye contact with the people that we're talking to. There have to be more safe ways for be, for people to be around each other if they have particular health problems. Because the, the, the reason that it feels like I, I have to talk to a therapist or I'm so lonely or my my life is so difficult is because of this, this lack of human contact. And so the point is to be more creative. Zoom isn't going to do it. It's not going to do it because you don't get any you get very little oxytocin from it. And, and, you know, and social media is even worse. You'll get lonelier by the minute, but there's got to be a way to stay safe and to be able to look somebody else that you love in the eye. Let me go to caller Theodore in Sacramento. Theodore, you're on. 
Hey, good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call. I have a question, and I don't mean to to be the skunk at the garden party here, but is it possible that this question and this really this quest for the pursuit of happiness is a decadent thing? Allow me to explain myself. We are living in one of the freest times in the freest country. We have all these options how to spend our time with leisure. Is this question somehow a question of only a privileged society, whereas throughout human history, they never asked this question because they were too busy trying to survive or to work, as mm. are many people in the developing world. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's not a skunk at the garden party. It's totally legit. And and the truth is that to, to say what would be really, really um, annoying and evidence of decadence, as far as I'm concerned, is if we were saying, look, I'm entitled to be completely happy. And, and in point of fact, there are people who talk that way. Have you ever had teenagers? I'm kidding. So, I mean, it's a it's it's a problem because that's a that's an exercise in futility. But remember, you know, the whole idea of the American experiment, as flawed as the execution has been, was so beautifully put in the Declaration of Independence, where we had certain unalienable rights, and among them, life, okay, liberty, sure. And the pursuit of happiness, this radical idea that we were not entitled to happiness, that we had the, the unalienable right to go try to get it. And then, of course, we have to understand that, that actual happiness requires suffering and it requires struggle and it requires being fully alive. You know, we haven't talked about meaning, but, but mean, no, there's not one person listening to us right now, Nina, who, if I ask, you know, when did you find your greatest sense of meaning? They would say that week at the beach in Ibiza. No, no. They would say that time I was afraid that time that I lost somebody that I loved, that time that something bad happened and I survived, that's when I found who I am as a person. And I found unique insight into what was going on in my life. You know, we, we need to suffer. And so unhappiness is part of it as well. Yeah, the role of unhappiness in happiness is very interesting. And you're touching on that too. It's also making me think a little bit about your own personal journey, Arthur, because it is very interesting. Like you left your job as head of the AEI, the conservative think tank, right? And you you were a French horn player at one point. You, you now are writing and teaching about happiness. And I'm wondering maybe if you could share one or two of those moments when you made those transitions. And typically, right, we make those kinds of transitions when something isn't quite working um, for right. us. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it took a long time for me to figure out what was going on with me, <laughs> which is one of the nice things about being 59 as opposed to 29 is you've had a lot more time to study the, you know, the thing in front of you, which is yourself and your own life. Most of the people um, who are at my business school, I teach at a you know, pretty famous business school at this point, they, they're taught that their life is kind of a, a straight upward line if all goes well. And success means moving from one thing to another, let's say professionally. Um, when something better comes along in terms of the earth, the, the earthly rewards of money and power and the admiration of other people, that's called the linear career path. And some people do pursue that. But what I've found in my own, my own work as a social scientist is that there's three other 
paths. There's three other career vocational paths. One is, is you know, what you call the expert path where you, you really don't change very much. And the reason is because you want a lot of security and you want a lifestyle. It's really not about your career. Another is a transitory path where you kind of jump from thing to thing to thing. And, you know, now you're a barista in Portland and, and now you're going to do long haul trucking out of Baton Rouge. And then you fell in love. And so you moved to Southern California. That's what your, your, your mother's greatest paranoid fantasy is about your, about your professional life. But a lot of people have this fourth one, which is called the spiral career path. Many of my business students, but also my, my government students, I also teach at the Kennedy School, and, and they're spirals. They're not linear and just like super ambitious. They are ambitious to build their life their own way, to have a series of miniature careers that expresses the startup of their own life and their own creativity. These are people who typically between seven and 12 years, then they'll go to a new thing. Sometimes they'll make more money, sometimes less money. Sometimes it's a company, sometimes it's a nonprofit or working for the government or, or, or you know, taking time away and raising their children. And their life is this beautiful composition of their own design. My students feel seen for the first time when I give them that model. And that's, that's me. I've spiraled yeah. more than a pass from Tom Brady. But and it sounds like work is a source of great meaning for you, right? So how if, since you've changed careers sort of later in life, for example, right, you've taken on this role teaching happiness, what guided your move to this? Because you write about, you know, in Strength is Strength, this is actually not in the Build a Life You Want, though you, you touch on this too, of course, but like how our abilities shift and how to better align with those shifts? Yeah. And what, one of the things that I've studied a great deal in my own work is, is the fact that our natural strengths change over the course of our lives. But most of the time, nobody tells us that. So you find, I mean, there's a huge amount of work on burnout. You know, people in their 40s, they burn out from what they were doing. And the reason for that has nothing really to do with boredom. It has to do with the fact that you, you're, you're not getting better anymore at what made you really good at what you do in your 20s and 30s. So people who are real professional strivers, which by the way, that's not the only way to live, but a lot of people listening to us, they're pretty interested in in being good at what they do. And generally speaking, in your 20s and 30s, that requires a a phenomenon called fluid intelligence, which is all about working memory and innovative capacity and indefatigable focus. But that tends to peak in your late 30s and early 40s, and then it declines. And most people in their mid-40s don't know that. I mean, they're not incompetent, but they're just not getting better. And you know, progress is really the source of happiness. And, and so they feel frustrated and burned out. The truth is that there's a second intelligence curve that comes in behind it called crystallized intelligence, which is based on your ability to teach. It doesn't require working memory, thank God. I mean, at 59, I, you know, it's just, it's ridiculous uh, how <laughs> how much less working memory I have. It's like, and and it, it's, it's amazing. I haven't gotten your name wrong, Nina, in, you know, in this because- <laughs> well, you know, Actually, it's Nina with an M like Mary, yeah, but yeah. that's okay. <laughs> it's like, good morning, Houston. You know, so I'm going <laughs> to screw this up, right? So, you know, it's, but, but the point is that it's working memory, it's not on working memory, but on pattern recognition, on, on the ability to tell a story, on, on the use of metaphor and language. It gets better and better through your 40s and 50s and 60s and stays high in your 70s and 80s. So we need to move from our, our, our innovator curve to our instructor curve, from our startup entrepreneur curve to our venture capitalist curve, by which I don't mean specifically you know, money and, and, and companies. I mean, it means something in each one of our lives. I used to be a very mathematical researcher doing theoretical work that was so sophisticated. I can't read it today. 
Today, I have a you know a column that's read by 500,000 people a week who are non-specialists because I've gone from innovator to instructor. Yeah. Instructor, the crystallized intelligence. Well, Matthew writes, with regard to achieving happiness, I found that the most critical component for me is to learn to distinguish when it really matters to have an opinion and what's important to be especially attentive to versus what doesn't really matter as much. I'm not, it's not that important that my relatives load the dishwasher differently than I do. I can let that go. I tell myself in parentheses. <laughs> yeah, we are talking with Arthur Brooks, Harvard professor yeah. and columnist at The Atlantic. His new book is Build the Life You Want. He did it with Oprah Winfrey. And this is a fundraising period for KQED. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, let me go to caller Elisa and Arinda. Elisa, join us. Hi. So I have found that the practice of mindfulness is really a path to happiness. Mindfulness in its definition puts, teaches, one teaches oneself to put the pause between stimulus and response. And so in that pause, you gain clarity um, mm -hmm. and you can temper your reaction. And the other practice that I've really found helpful is a very ancient practice of um, Musar, which was practiced uh, at least in the 19th century in Lithuania. And it's um, an ethical and spiritual practice that focuses on character traits and how we develop them. The difference between Musar and uh, mindfulness is that Musar is practiced with other people. So how do we develop ourselves in terms of humility, gratitude, things like that in the world? And so for me, the combination of focusing on these character traits, putting the pause in, and how mm. do I practice it in the world and reflect on it with other people, um, has brought not just happiness, but an incredible calmness with still the ability to experience the highs of great joy, but not to get riled or ruffled. Hmm. Yeah. Thanks, Good stuff. Lisa. Yeah, at least a great, great stuff. I mean, and, and these are the same basic sets of ideas that we find in almost every ethical and religious tradition. So, you know, over the last 11 years, I've been working very closely with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. We've worked together. We've, we've done, you know, speaking together and we've written together and we're, we're working on a couple of projects right now. And one of the things that I find is that, that he, he teaches these things in Tibetan Buddhism in exactly the same way that I have learned these things as a Roman Catholic. In fact, you know, in working on my mindfulness practice and, and you know, working on my meditation technique, I, you know, I made the most, I mean, because I'm a long-term meditator in the Catholic tradition, in the mystical Catholic tradition, and I made the most progress in my technique on these mindfulness and Musar traditions, but, but the way the Tibetans talk about it, by studying with the Tibetan Buddhist monks in Dharamsala. You know, the truth is there's a lot of, there's a lot of routes to these, these you know, ethical truths and these mindfulness practices that can improve our lives a lot. Yeah. And right now people are at the stage where they're sort of thinking about their resolutions for 2024. And mm. I was just wondering if you have a piece of advice for how to approach it in light of if the goal is about really happiness. 
Yeah. So there, there is, a, you know, there's some basic advice. There's, you can get as complicated as you want, but most of the goals that people actually set, they turn out to be the wrong goals and that's why they're abandoned. So, so a lot of the, the New Year's resolutions, they go into the buckets of, you know, what's, what Thomas Aquinas called the idols of life. So everybody is sort of idolatrous and, and we all have our own idols. And he said that the four kinds of idols fall, fall in four buckets. He said this in 1265, by the way. So the dark ages really weren't so dark. He said they fall in the buckets of money, power, pleasure, and the admiration of others, right? And so, and so basically, this is what it comes down to. It's like, yeah, I'm going to get chiseled abs in 2024. You're just looking for the admiration of other people. And the problem with those goals is they're not satisfying. They get harder and harder and harder to attain. And the, so the cost goes up and up and up and up. And you're finding the benefit is not that great from those things. The right goals for your New Year's resolutions are the things that we started off the conversation with that really endure, whereas time goes by, they get better, not worse. Work on your faith, your transcendence, your spirituality, your philosophy. Work on your on deepening your family, your mystical family relationships. Maybe maybe patching up something that's fallen away where there's a schism, and you know it's like I I don't care how people load the dishwasher. You know what? I don't even care how they vote. That's a tough one. Try that one out. Making more real friends as opposed to deal friends. And last but not least, thinking about your work, making it meaningful. There's only two ways to do that, to make it into a holy vocation, which is to create value with your work and to serve others. Well, let me see if I can squeeze Bob in really fast. Bob, your question, hopefully quickly. Yes. um, Thanks. Uh, So you've been talking about individual happiness. Um, What about societal happiness. John Stuart Mill, I believe, wrote about happiness as being the end goal of civil society. Mm. Is there anything you can tell us about translating individual happiness into societal happiness, maybe solving some of the distress we have with our current uh, political system? Yeah. Yeah, no, no. The big problem with the political system today is that um, people feed on polarization and fear, not on the happiness and love in the population to actually get supporters and votes. And that happens all the time. Now, happiness requires that we, that we, that we work on ourselves to be sure. But one of the greatest ways that we can get happier is to, is to serve and love others. When people are lonely, the number one technique when you're feeling lonely to alleviate the discomfort from loneliness is to go help somebody, to go serve somebody, to go volunteer. You want a cocoon, but that's the wrong strategy. Happiness of society comes from happiness of ourselves, which means that we have to love others and make the decision to do so. Happiness is love. Well, Elmo writes, I read the book and the best takeaway is your point that we should work on being happier and not totally happy all the time. Elmo, thanks for that. (laughs) Uh, Professor Brooks, thanks so much for coming on today to talk about what you've learned about happiness and strategies to, to get happier. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks. I wish I were out there in person. Arthur C. Brooks. The book is Build the Life You Want, co-authored with Oprah Winfrey. And the forum team. This was a a segment produced by Dan Zoll. It includes Dan Zoll, Caroline Smith, Mark Nieto, Marlena Jackson-Rotondo, Ashley Eng, Francesca Fenzi, Susie Britton, Danny Bringer, Christopher Buell, Brendan Willard, Catherine Monaghan. Our interns are Jericho Reininger and Emiko Oda, Ethan Tovin Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Nina. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.